there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of conspiracy, slavery, and presidential assassination that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. America is a young and deeply patriotic country with impassioned citizens on both sides of the political divide. Even though that divide may seem deeper today than it ever has been, there was one period in history when political differences actually split the country apart. In the tumult of the Civil War, America lost one of its most famous and beloved presidents. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by Confederate supporters only 11 days after the surrender of the South. While we've all heard of John Wilkes Booth, the popular actor who shot Lincoln, few know of Mary Surratt, the first woman ever executed by the U.S. federal government for her part in the Lincoln assassination. Was Mary a cold-blooded co-conspirator in the murder of a president? Or was she simply guilty of misplaced loyalties to her son and his assassin friends? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we'll be exploring the life of Mary Surratt, one of the co-conspirators convicted of helping John Wilkes Booth in his plot to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. During times of great strain, decisions that would in times of peace seem unthinkable start to seem reasonable, like murdering a person you blame for the ills in your life. In the case of Mary Surratt, the person she grew to resent, who she at least in part blamed for her family's woes, was the President of the United States. Along with John Wilkes Booth and several other men, including her own son, she helped to plan and carry out the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Today, we'll dive into the life of Mary Surratt before she became one of the most controversial women in American history. Next week, we'll explore her role in the Lincoln assassination and the ensuing trial that cost Mary her life. While we obviously could never condone her actions, and it's difficult to truly dive into the psyche of a woman who lived over 150 years ago, we'll try to understand how a mother, widow, and business owner could grow to resent the president so much that she eventually conspired to murder him. 
Mary Surratt was born Mary Elizabeth Jenkins in May of either 1820 or 1823, but for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to assume she was born in 1823. She was born at probably one of the most exciting times in United States history, only 40 years after the American Revolution had ended, and just 40 years before the Civil War would tear the young country in two. By all accounts, her childhood was a relatively normal one for the time period. She and her two brothers grew up on their family's tobacco plantation, which was worked by slaves. When their father died unexpectedly in 1825, Mary's mother inherited the property from her husband and ran it with the help of her sons. Though it isn't clear exactly how successful the plantation was, the family was doing well enough to afford to send Mary to the Academy for Young Ladies, a Roman Catholic girls' boarding school in a nearby town, when she turned 12 in 1835. Even though both of Mary's parents ascribed, at least in name, to Protestantism, Catholic schools often offered higher quality educations than were available elsewhere at the time. The school and religion also seemed to speak to Mary in a way her parents' lax take on religion did not. Within two years of beginning her education at the Catholic school, 14-year-old Mary had converted to Roman Catholicism. She chose Maria Eugenia as her baptismal name. Mary would remain a practicing Catholic for the rest of her life. In 1839, the school closed, and 16-year-old Mary was sent home to Waterloo, Maryland, where she met and began courting a 26-year-old man named John Harrison Surratt. It was very common in the early 1800s for men to be, on average, five years older than their wives. While the age gap between Mary and John was a bit wider than average, there were bigger factors that made John an odd choice of partner. He was known to be a bit of a drinker and had already fathered a child out of wedlock before meeting Mary. This would have been a serious red flag in the early 1800s. He was also an orphan who had been raised by a wealthy couple from Washington, D.C., His adoptive parents had biological children of their own, so he didn't expect to inherit much, if any money or land from them. For Mary, the educated daughter of a plantation owner, this wasn't exactly marrying up. Regardless, after a year of courting, 17-year-old Mary convinced John to convert to Catholicism. The couple married in a Catholic service in August 1840. For at least the first three years of their marriage, from 1840 to 1843, the couple enjoyed a honeymoon period in their new home. John bought and worked a mill, which provided a decent income. When Mary was 18, she gave birth to their first son, Isaac, in 1841. Their daughter, Anna, followed in 1843. By 1843, John had amassed enough money to buy 236 acres of land from his adoptive father. Later in the year, he was able to purchase an additional 119 acres after his father's death. The land was situated right on the Washington, D.C., Maryland border and should have provided the family with a hefty amount of equity and security. Unfortunately, the couple never seems to have done much with the property, which is unusual considering John had experience working on his family's farm growing up and had been successfully operating a mill for at least three years. This may have had something to do with an inability to afford slaves. At that time, it was common practice to purchase slave workers for your land because there was simply too much work on a large farm for one person or even a small family to do. 
John Surratt may have been waiting until he could afford slaves to work the land, but other obligations got in the way. Shortly after the birth of their third and final child, John Jr., in 1844, there was added pressure from John's aging adoptive mother to help her run the family farm, which was located inside the borders of Washington, D.C. It's unclear if this land was attached to the land he had bought from his father. John, Mary, and the family moved in with John's mother in 1845. She died only a few months later, leaving the remainder of his family's lands, farms, and seven slaves to John. It's unclear why she chose John as the sole inheritor of the family's estate, instead of dividing it among the children, but it was surely convenient for John and Mary. Unfortunately, the sizable inheritance didn't bring the family closer together. John had always been a drinker, but his drinking escalated obscenely while he tried to run the family's farm between 1845 and 1851. He accumulated more and more debts he couldn't pay. He grew angry and violent toward Mary and their children. In letters John wrote to his friends, he openly blamed his wife for his debts and his failures as a farmer. To escape John's drinking and temper, Mary turned her focus to fundraising for the building of a church nearby. John openly resented this activity. He had converted to Catholicism, but he didn't understand or appreciate Mary's devotion. Only about 10 years into their marriage, things were already going downhill. It seemed only a matter of time before the couple would go their separate ways. In 1851, six years after Mary and John inherited the family estate, smoke woke the Surratt family in the dead of night. John, Mary, and their three children rushed outside as flames began to engulf their home. By morning, there was nothing left but ash. As they checked the slave quarters, they discovered that one of their seven slaves had disappeared during the night, possibly setting the blaze to distract from his escape. With the family's farm burned to the ground, there was no reason left for Mary to keep living with her abusive, alcoholic husband. John moved to Virginia to work for the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, while 28-year-old Mary happily spirited her children away and moved in with one of her cousins near her family's plantation in Waterloo, Maryland. John, however, couldn't let the new arrangement stand for long. It's unclear whether he genuinely wanted to reunite with his family or if the public shame of losing his property and family spurred him into action. But by the end of 1853, just two years after the blaze, John was taking steps to restore his wealth and win Mary back. He purchased 200 acres of land at the epicenter of county traffic and used it to build an inn and tavern. Anyone who wanted to travel north into Washington, D.C. had to pass along the road through his property, ensuring the inn would never want for customers. The property was a quick success, but still it wasn't enough to reassure 30-year-old Mary that John had changed his drunken ways. She didn't want to go back to him only to once again endure his angry tantrums. But there were two problems. Firstly, Mary couldn't stay at her cousin's home for much longer. With three young mouths to feed, her family was simply too much of a burden for her friends and family to support. The second problem was that, as a married woman in 19th century America, her legal rights began and ended with her marriage certificate. Before we get into this, please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. 
A massive study conducted by the University of Wisconsin Law School tells us that marriage in the 19th century was legally and socially much different from our idea of marriage today. In the 19th century, when a man and woman entered into a marriage, they were seen legally and culturally as a single entity, with certain expectations and duties placed on them as a couple, no matter how they decided to live within the marriage. Essentially, they were no longer two separate people, but an organization permanently recognized by the state. And judges in law enforcement were encouraged to enforce those legal and cultural rules upon married couples. If married couples were found to be living apart, for example, the courts could order them to live together again. Divorce was extremely expensive and difficult to obtain, especially since Mary was a Catholic and would require additional permission from the church to divorce her husband. John knew this, and he knew that as long as Mary was his wife, he had a great deal of legal leverage over her. Mary tried to move back onto what remained of John's family's property instead of moving into the new tavern with him. But, as the legal owner of the estate, John sold the land she was living on, finally forcing Mary and the children to move back in with him in December of 1853. Mary didn't know it yet, but this was a decision that would change American history. We'll get back to the Surratt family's reunion after a quick break. Now back to the story. In December 1853, Mary Surratt and her three children moved back in with her husband John in his new tavern and inn outside Washington, D.C. Setting aside the underhanded, manipulative legal tactics John used to lure his family back, he seems to have attempted to do right by them once they were living together again. With the remaining money from the sale of his family's land, John surprised Mary on December 6, 1853, by buying a $4,000 townhouse at 604 H Street in Washington, D.C. It was a pretty grand gesture on John's part. $4,000 in 1853 would be about $130,000 today. No small sum considering the fire had destroyed almost all of their wealth two years before. In the beginning, they used the townhouse as a second home, in part to show off their wealth and to establish themselves as socialites in D.C.'s inner circles. But John told Mary that he eventually hoped to use it as a boarding house to bring in another source of income. In 1854, John expanded the tavern on his land into a hotel, which he called Surratt's Hotel, and installed a post office in the tavern. By the end of the year, his businesses had attracted at least 12 families to settle in the area, allowing John to officially designate the little blurb as a village, which he called Surrattsville. John became Surrattsville's first postmaster, a position that was quite respectable in its time. In the late 1800s, people often gathered at post offices to gossip and play cards, and the new post office's proximity to the tavern and hotel ensured more customers for those businesses, too. John and Mary Surratt had positioned themselves right at the center of the growing community. Many of the customers that visited their businesses were pro-slavery and advocated protecting the way of life for Southern Americans, which the Surratts considered themselves to be. In the tense years leading up to the Civil War, the Surratt's family's property surely became a hotbed of discussion about slavery, states' rights, and secession. 
John used some of the profits from his new businesses to send their children, now between the ages of 11 and 14, to Catholic boarding schools, an obvious attempt to reassure 31-year-old Mary that he had changed his ways for good. Between 1854 and 1857, John expanded his business ventures even further to include granaries, stables, and tobacco-curing houses. Things were looking up for the Surratt family. Unfortunately, the stress of the new businesses reintroduced the pressures that had driven John to drink heavily before. Now, 34-year-old Mary often found him so drunk he could barely be woken. With John out of commission, the running of all of these businesses then fell to Mary and the family's six slaves. Mary was now responsible for running a hotel, tavern, boarding house, and several other businesses, while still keeping house and raising three children. In one letter, Mary implored a local priest to help her negotiate the tuition at her children's boarding schools. In her own words, she told him, quote, As you know, dear father, it will all have to come through and by my own management. End quote. She was on her own, with no help in sight. Debts began to accumulate, forcing John to sell half of his land holdings to pay them off. He also sold four of their remaining slaves for petty cash, an act that was quite embarrassing at the time in Maryland society. John's drinking became so bad that he was seen in their tavern day and night on drunken display for the entire town to see. By 1858, 35-year-old Mary began reaching out to local priests to help her shake some sense into her husband. She told them in confidence that John was never sober anymore, and she was embarrassed to visit friends, isolating her further from the community. Research conducted by the University of Texas at Austin has shown that the suppression of emotion, particularly repeated or cultural suppressions, or those tied to a sense of moral or social duty, can build up over time, leading to an increase in aggression and even emotional outbursts. This is something scientists refer to as the ego depletion effect. The longer a person has to repress how they feel, the bigger the resulting outburst may be. This might go a long way toward explaining the inner workings of a woman like Mary Surratt, who had a family to protect and children to raise. Her life was a constant struggle as she attempted to keep her family together and her husband's businesses afloat during a time of deep social unrest. The Civil War didn't suddenly spring up overnight. It was the final result of decades of mistrust, fear, and dissatisfaction across the United States. As evidenced by her later crimes, Mary was surely feeling the pressure of her turbulent, deeply divided cultural atmosphere. In 1860, John and Mary's daughter, 17-year-old Anna, was nearly finished with her education at Catholic boarding school, and her 16-year-old son, John Jr., had enrolled in St. Charles College. Mary was forced to auction off more land to pay for their educations and to keep their townhouse in Washington, D.C., the constant upkeep of the family's empire without her husband's help was starting to exhaust Mary. At 37 years old, Mary was entering what was considered an advanced age for the time, and her family's future worried her constantly. A bigger crisis was looming just beyond the horizon for the strained family. A young, hopeful lawyer in Illinois was beginning to make political waves as he traveled to New York to speak about a new America without slavery. On May 9, 1860, Abraham Lincoln received his first endorsement to run for President of the United States. 
He was elected and inaugurated less than a year later on March 4, 1861. As news trickled south to Maryland, it sent shivers through the spines of many Marylanders who relied on unpaid slave labor to maintain their fortunes and businesses. 37-year-old Mary Surratt and her family were slave-owning Confederate sympathizers, or in her own words, Southern through and through. For most white Southerners, the moral atrocity of slavery was outweighed by the apparent necessity of slave labor to maintain their economic system. From Mary's perspective, the anti-slavery Lincoln's victory threatened their entire way of life. It came at the worst possible time for the family, when they were in dire financial straits, down to two slaves and selling off pieces of land to keep their businesses afloat. Only three days after Lincoln's inauguration, on March 7, 1861, Mary's 19-year-old son Isaac enlisted in the newly formed Confederate Army and moved to Texas, eventually becoming a cavalryman and fighting on horseback. It was a decision that would fully thrust the rest of the Surratts into the Southern cause, transforming a political opinion into a family-wide personal crusade. It seems necessary at this point to acknowledge that children learn their racial biases and political leanings from their parents. In the case of the Surratts, who overtly identified themselves as pro-Southern in the years leading up to the Civil War, it's clear that the reinforcement of owning slaves and living with parents who raised them to favor the South led to Isaac's decision to fight for the Confederacy. A 2012 study at Harvard found that children learn to favor the political beliefs and racism of their parents at as early as three or four years old. Previous research had suggested that racism takes hold in adolescence, but this new Harvard study suggests that racism in particular is a very straightforward bias for parents to pass down to their young children. Political beliefs, however, are more of a mixed bag. Separate studies carried out by Cambridge and Stanford have found that while growing up with political parents turned children into adults that cared about politics, it didn't guarantee that those children would agree with their parents' politics. The researchers found that the children raised by politically active parents sought out political conversations when they later left home, any type of political conversations, no matter the viewpoint. Essentially, the kids went looking for the same type of conversations they'd had at home, regardless of the content. As a result, they often became more receptive to different ideologies and opinions. In fact, the researchers found that the more intensely parents tried to turn their children into political mini-me's, the more likely their kids were to rebel against their ideologies after leaving home. However, in the 19th century, families often continued to live together long after children had grown into adults. Opportunities for the Surratt children to be exposed to different ideologies were rare. It was much easier for them to accept the Confederate viewpoint that Lincoln's election was a danger to their way of life. A little over a month after Lincoln's election, on April 12, 1861, the southern United States split from the north, beginning one of the bloodiest wars in American history. Maryland was considered a border state, positioned on the border between northern and southern territory. Its strategic position next to Washington, D.C. meant that despite the overwhelming majority of the state's citizens being pro-Confederacy, the Union forcibly prevented Maryland from seceding. 
Soldiers were encamped there throughout the duration of the war, and Marylanders were often forced to swear loyalty oaths before they were allowed to shop in certain places or vote in mid-year elections. Even suspicions of disloyalty to the Union could lose them their jobs and their property. So, many in Maryland began aiding the South any discreet way they could, by harboring Confederate agents, passing letters back and forth, or providing information they overheard. Mary's Tavern and Hotel became a halfway stop for Confederate agents, including Thomas Nelson Conrad, one of Confederate President Jefferson Davis's personal spies. Some historians wonder if Mary knew about the people who passed through her businesses, let alone spoke with them, since very little of Mary's surviving correspondence suggests she was participating in the Confederate cause. However, it's difficult to imagine that she could have remained oblivious to the Confederate agents frequenting her business. And she was certainly aware that her 17-year-old son, John Jr., left college to become a courier for the Confederate Secret Service in July 1861. He was essentially a smuggler, moving back and forth across the secession lines with money, supplies, and messages. Shortly after that, 300 Union soldiers marched into Surrattsville. Union agents on the hunt for disloyal border state citizens came knocking on Mary's door. Despite investigations into her tavern and hotel, their scare tactics didn't seem to work. The Confederate spy network remained intact in Surrattsville throughout the war. The pressures on Mary, both politically and as a business owner, would rise even further in August 1862, when her husband John died from a stroke at the age of 49. John Jr. succeeded him as postmaster of the Surrattsville Post Office on September 10, 1862. Only a few days later, the Union agents returned to camp out in Surrattsville, firing nearby postmasters for disloyalty. John Jr. escaped scrutiny for almost a year. Until he tried to apply for a job at the Union Department of War in August 1863, possibly as part of a Confederate espionage scheme. His application dragged his family's loyalties under federal scrutiny at precisely the wrong time. His name had previously come up on a list of potential Confederate couriers, as he traveled between Maryland and Virginia often. This was just circumstantial evidence, but the mere suggestion of disloyalty was enough to lose him his position as postmaster for disloyalty in November 1863, causing even more financial problems for the Surratt family. John Jr.'s contributions to the family were humbled to selling vegetables by the roadside. Debts were piling up. More of the family's slaves fled north. It's curious to note that, at the start of the Civil War, slavery was still legal in Maryland, even though it was technically a northern state. By the time Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated, seven states had already seceded from the Union. Lincoln ran on a platform that supported freezing the practice of slavery as it existed, but barred further expansion to new states. He hoped this compromise would appease the South, while eventually allowing slavery to die out on its own. Of course, the South saw the policy as a compromise that would strangle their economy over a longer period of time, instead of just beheading it quickly. And Mary's family and businesses were certainly feeling that pressure, especially as their slaves fled. The resentment the family already felt for the Union was growing. Mary began to wonder, if Lincoln had never been elected, perhaps their lives might have never fallen so low. But it did nothing to dwell on regrets of the past. Instead, 
Mary turned her attention to possibilities for the future, a future without that meddlesome Northern troublemaker, Abraham Lincoln. We'll take a closer look at Mary's plans after a quick break. Now, back to the story. By 1864, 41-year-old Mary Surratt's family had been brought to the brink of financial ruin by her late husband's bad debts, the loss of John Jr.'s position as postmaster, and the Civil War, which sought to end the free slave labor they depended on for their business and livelihood. As the bloody Civil War raged across swaths of the American East, Lincoln was also busy with his re-election campaign in 1864. Many on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line thought that the sheer brutality of the war would sway many voters to turn away from Abraham Lincoln that year. But the combined effect of the Union's victory in the Battle of Mobile Bay in August 1864 and their capture of the city of Atlanta the next month secured Lincoln enough support to win re-election in a landslide victory on November 8, 1864. That same year, Maryland declared slavery illegal, finally stripping the Surratt family of its last unpaid laborers, making it almost impossible to keep the various family businesses running in Surrattsville. Mary began making plans. On December 1, 1864, Mary moved her family and belongings out of Surrattsville for good and into their townhouse in Washington, D.C. She rented out her tavern and hotel to a former policeman named John Lloyd and began operating a boarding house out of her townhouse while she and her family still lived there. On December 23, 1864, John Surratt Jr. met John Wilkes Booth through their mutual friend, Dr. Samuel Mudd. All three men were sympathetic to the South's plight, and Booth like John Jr., was a member of the Confederate Secret Service. John Jr. was soon pulled into Booth's plans to kidnap President Lincoln. Booth hoped to hold him ransom in exchange for the release of key Confederate prisoners of war. When Booth and his co-conspirators needed a safe place to meet, John Jr. brought them home to Mary's boarding house. We should pause here to reiterate the controversy surrounding Mary Surratt's role in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Even today, historians are still torn as to the extent of Mary's participation in the plot to kill Lincoln. Many people believe her an innocent bystander, blind to the political rebellion that happened to be planned under her roof. Many others think that while she knew what was being discussed in her boarding house, she herself never played any major role in the murder of Abraham Lincoln. There are others, of course, who believe she knew and participated in everything. Historians Kate Larson and Roy Chambly have noted that the choice to leave Surrattsville and move to Washington, D.C. was an unusual decision for Mary Surratt to make, since living in the city would have cost the family far more money than staying in Surrattsville. Other historians, such as Joan Chaconis, have suggested that this proves Mary Surratt's motivation for the move wasn't purely financial, but instead it was a strategic step in a Confederate plot unfolding within the Surratt household. Another piece of evidence suggesting Mary at least knew about the threat against the president occurred in January 1865. While still working as a courier and spy for the Confederates, John Jr. transferred everything left to him after his father's death to his mother's name, including titles and properties. 
If John Jr. had expressed plans to join the Confederate Army, where his life would be in danger during battle, this decision might have made sense. But he had no intention of becoming a soldier. Instead, many historians believe he gave Mary his inheritance to protect her from a law that allows the government to seize the property and fortune of traitors if they're arrested. There's no way of knowing whether Mary understood the implications of her son's transfer of property, but it's possible she put it together and surmised that her son was in danger of being arrested for treason. Another unresolved matter is the peculiar nature of the tenants Mary kept in her D.C. townhouse. Mary told friends and family she would only accept boarders she knew or recommendations from friends she trusted. She could have done this to protect herself from Union scrutiny, since an untrustworthy boarder could reveal her Confederate sympathies to the authorities. But many of the people she allowed to stay in her house weren't just any Southern sympathizers. They were friends John Jr. made while working for the Confederate Secret Service. George Atzerodt and Lewis Powell, both co-conspirators of John Wilkes Booth and John Surratt Jr. in their plot to kidnap Lincoln, stayed in Mary's townhouse at various times throughout the winter and spring of 1865. Another co-conspirator, David Harold, also visited for meetings. And while John Wilkes Booth never lived in the townhouse, he visited frequently. Mary's 22-year-old daughter, Anna, was enamored with Booth. He was, after all, an enormously popular actor and celebrity at the time. In an odd twist of fate, Abraham Lincoln was an enormous fan of Booth as an actor and tried at various times to invite Booth to the White House for dinner. Booth declined every time. He was too busy planning the kidnapping of his biggest fan. The plan to kidnap Lincoln stemmed from a recent decision by Union General Ulysses S. Grant to stop exchanging prisoners of war with the Confederacy. By denying the South its men, eventually they would run out of soldiers. When Booth learned that Lincoln was going to attend a play at an area hospital on March 17, 1865, Booth devised a plot to grab the president as he was leaving. It was not uncommon in the 1800s for presidents to travel without security. Booth believed he would simply be able to approach Lincoln, stick a gun in his back, and force him into a carriage. They could then use him as a bargaining chip to force the North to release Southern prisoners. In anticipation of the kidnapping, John Jr. and the other co-conspirators, some of whom were living in Mary's boarding house at the time, hid supplies, weapons, and ammunition in Mary's tavern in Surrattsville. When March 17th finally came, Booth hid by the play venue for hours, poised to strike as Lincoln left. In yet another odd twist of fate, however, Lincoln decided to skip the play to attend a ceremony at the National Hotel, where Booth himself was living at the time. Like ships passing in the night. The missed opportunity was a terrible blow to the conspirators. And then, on April 3, 1865, Robert E. Lee surrendered the Confederate Army, effectively ending the Civil War for good. All of Booth, Mary, and John Jr.'s hopes and dreams of a Southern victory evaporated in a single day. Even worse, Mary's oldest son Isaac had been in Texas fighting for the Confederates since the beginning of the war, and Mary hadn't heard from him in months. There was no way of knowing if he had survived, or whether Confederate soldiers would be executed now that the war was over. Eight days later, on April 11th, Lincoln gave a speech at the White House, both to celebrate the Union's victory and to announce his intentions to seek voting rights for freed black men across America. John Wilkes Booth fumed as he listened. 
He was furious that a war that had cost an estimated 620,000 lives was being celebrated as a victory for anyone. Standing in the crowd, watching the president speak, Booth turned to his co-conspirator, Lewis Powell, and told him to shoot Lincoln dead on the spot. Powell refused, afraid of the crowd's response. But Booth swore that soon he would run the president through. Psychologist and philosopher Eric Frum was among the first to coin the term group narcissism, in which a person begins to identify so strongly with a group he idealizes that he becomes aggressively protective of it to an obscene level. He is the group, so any resistance to what the group believes in is taken as a personal attack against him and all he holds dear. Irrational anger, hatred, and violence against the group's perceived enemies seem justified. Exactly why Booth grew so angry is debatable. Some historians believe Booth originally chose to defend the South because of his fierce rivalry with his older brother, Edwin Booth. Not to make light, but Edwin and John Wilkes Booth were like the Hemsworth brothers of their age. Edwin Booth was also an actor, and by the 1860s, his star far outshone that of his older brother, John. Research done by Nora Titone on the Booth family's letters and journals has revealed that the brothers were locked in a fierce battle against one another throughout their entire lives. As Edwin Starr rose, he became something of a poster boy for the Union effort. When John's acting career stagnated in comparison to his brother, he committed to making a name for himself elsewhere, in the Confederacy. His personal narcissism eventually gave way to group narcissism, And eventually, he brought John Jr. and Mary Surratt into the fold of that narcissism. While Edwin was a star, John Wilkes Booth was known to turn heads in a way few others could. He was a magnetic speaker, and his rhetoric called others to listen. Other historians, however, note that Booth was a white supremacist. An entire war fought to end the enslavement of African Americans might have been enough to fuel his group narcissism and that of his co-conspirators. At the time, many Southern loyalists in the border states were looking for someone, anyone, to follow who captured the Southern spirit they feared they had lost. After Lincoln's speech, Booth and Powell went to Mary's townhouse. In the streets outside her door, thousands of people were celebrating the defeat of the South and the end of the Civil War. But the townhouse's curtains were drawn tightly against the sun. Mary was in mourning, devastated by the South's defeat and surrender. That is, until Booth and Powell walked through the door. Booth gathered his co-conspirators together and swore that there would be vengeance against the man they blamed for the South's defeat. The details of the conversation and whether or not Mary was involved in the meeting are unknown. What we do know is that John Jr. went north to New York to deliver messages to Confederate agents, while Mary hastened into her carriage and rode straight for her tavern in Surrattsville. She told her tenants that she was riding to Surrattsville to collect a debt owed to her. While in Surrattsville, however, she told John Lloyd, the policeman who was renting the tavern, to get the family's shooting irons ready to be picked up. Three days later, on April 14th, Booth visited the theater where the play Our American Cousin was performing and learned that Abraham Lincoln would attend that evening. Booth saw it as the opportunity of a lifetime he could finally correct the mistake he had made the month before when his kidnapping plot went awry. Booth left the theater and went directly to Mary's D.C. townhouse. He spoke with her privately, 
giving her a pair of binoculars to take to her tavern in Surrattsville. Booth also told his co-conspirators the details of his plan. While he went to kill Lincoln at the theater, George Atzerodt would target Vice President Andrew Johnson, while Lewis Powell struck out at Secretary of State William H. Seward. Together, they could kill three high-ranking officials in a single evening and throw the government into chaos. Mary rode back to Surrattsville and dropped the binoculars off with John Lloyd, repeating her request for him to get the shooting irons ready. There would be a death that night, and if all went according to Booth and Mary's hopes, the South might just rise again. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll see how Mary Surratt earned her infamous position as the first woman ever executed by the U.S. federal government. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 